Happy New Year. This is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you this week from the great Northwest as I take a few days to enjoy Seattle in January. They say it's beautiful this time of year or something. Coming up, what Colorado is doing about climate change and how it could serve as a model for the rest of the West and the country. Plus, we will look back at a murder and execution that got the attention of everyone from Norman Mailer to Saturday Night Live this week in Western history. But first, let's do the news. A quick update on William Perry Pendley, the guy who is running the Bureau of Land Management, even though he hasn't been nominated for the job. It looks like that is going to be the status quo for the time being. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt signed an order renewing Pendley's authority to perform the duties of the BLM director, which has been without a Senate-confirmed director for the entire length of the Trump administration. Pendley showed up at the first day of work at the new BLM quote-unquote headquarters in Grand Junction, Colorado, but there's still no word on exactly how many people from the D.C. office accepted that move. It doesn't sound like many, if any at all, did. The big public lands news, though, is the Trump administration finally unveiling its plan to overhaul, and by that I mean undermine, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. NEPA is one of America's bedrock conservation laws that affects just about every major infrastructure project in the country. When you hear about projects that are subject to environmental reviews, that is usually NEPA in play. Now, we have seen the Trump administration take aim at laws they didn't like before, using rule changes to make an end run around them. But this proposed NEPA overhaul is probably the biggest and most egregious example of it yet. The rule change would declare that projects that are privately funded don't need environmental reviews. It would make it much easier to do things like build oil pipelines. It would rush most environmental reviews through in two years, even if those necessary studies would take longer than that. It would set page limits. This is essentially saying science can't be longer than a certain number of pages, which is, of course, not how science works. But perhaps most significantly, this would stop the government from considering the climate impacts of projects. Now, the Interior Department is opening a 60-day public comment period on the changes, but don't count on that doing anything. My colleague at Center for Western Priorities, Andre Miller, just released an analysis looking at 10 major rule changes at the Interior Department under the Trump administration. More than 95% of public comments submitted in all 10 of those rule changes opposed what the Trump administration was trying to do, but the Interior Department moved ahead anyway in eight of those 10 rulemakings. In the other two, the rules that Interior did change after public pushback, those were the rules that weren't pushed by oil, gas, and mining industries. So back to the NEPA changes now. All of this means the new NEPA rules are certainly going to head to the courts, and that's where things are going to get interesting because federal judges have already ruled multiple times that the government does need to consider the long-term climate impacts when doing environmental reviews. And the Trump administration has a terrible track record in court when it comes to environmental issues. So that is what's coming next. I guarantee that we will be talking about these proposed NEPA changes a whole lot over the next few months. This is our first episode of the new year, of the new decade. Uh, it is more apparent than ever that there is now a huge gap, a crevasse, 
a gaping maw between Westerners and the Trump administration when it comes to climate change and what to do about it. Now, last year, we talked to a number of elected officials in New Mexico about that. But nowhere is that gap more visible, I think, than in Colorado. So joining us to talk about that and how all of this could shake out this year, we've got Garrett Garner-Wells. He's the communications director at Conservation Colorado here in Denver. Garrett, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. So Conservation Colorado just this week hosted a telephone town hall with the governor, Jared Polis. How did that go? It went great. Uh, Always wonderful for Coloradans to have an opportunity here directly from the governor, uh, especially when it's centered on climate policy, public lands, and uh, what to expect this legislative session. At the top of that call, your executive director, Kelly Nordini, she noted that David Roberts of Vox was calling Colorado, quote, an island of sanity on climate policy. Before we hear from the governor, just explain why that is. Why, why is Colorado looking different than the rest of the country right now? Well, my favorite part of that quote, actually, is the beginning, which says the world may be a dumpster fire. but <laughs> and, and we've seen that within that dumpster fire, Colorado is really stepping up to lead. Um, we set economy-wide carbon reduction targets last legislative session. Uh, we're working to put those into practice across not just our utilities, uh, but looking at transportation, looking at the built environment, um, and really thinking about what it means for Colorado to lead. Uh, we can get into that more, but I, I think that's a critical opportunity. Um, and as you said at the top, the West is really set up to lead. And I, we will get into what that means and and, and how Colorado will do that. Uh Obviously, in order to get there, whatever those goals are, Colorado's economy is still very closely entwined with the oil and gas industry, uh, especially the the eastern part of the state, Weld County, uh, but also uh, on the west slope. So what does a transition away from fossil fuels look like in Colorado, and how do you do that without tanking a good chunk of the existing economy here? Well, I think there's two points on that. Uh, There's the broad one, which is that we've seen over and over again that when it comes to utilities, wind and solar are the cheapest options here in the state of Colorado. That was a central part of the Roberts piece. And so as we transition to a clean electricity future, ratepayers are really seeing savings, um, and that's manifest itself over and over again. As we think specifically about workers, though, uh, and that's something Colorado's done a lot of, we're seeing that a just transition is really going to be important. So earlier this week, Tri-State announced that they would be closing their Colorado-based coal plants by 2030. Um, That will have an economic impact, which is why last legislative session, Colorado passed the very first office of a just transition policy. And so Colorado's leaders are thinking about what it means for uh, the coal industry in particular to be phased out. Uh, That's the way the economics are headed. And thinking about what that's going to mean for workers. And I think we'll start to see that when it comes to oil and gas as well. All right. So let's take a listen first to what the governor had to say along those lines at the top of the call. And and then I want to get into, all right, so coal is feeling it now, but what does that look like then when oil and gas starts to, to feel it later? Here, here's the governor. Um, our commitment is uh, to 100% renewable energy is really motivated by a number of reasons. It's not just about 
uh, protecting our air and our water and our climate. I, I truly also view it as a huge economic opportunity for Coloradans. There's already 63,000 Coloradans employed in renewable energy, and it's growing by 9% a year, one of the fastest growing sectors. And so the states and the countries and the counties and the cities that embrace renewable energy will reap the rewards. Uh, lower costs for consumers, cleaner air, positioning themselves for success in the future, and doing our part to make our planet inhabitable for the next generation and the next. All right. So we are preparing Colorado's economy. We are creating all of these jobs in manufacturing. Um, but at some point, if you're going to reach these climate targets, uh, the number of jobs being affected by coal is much smaller than the number of jobs right now in the oil and gas world. Uh, so how do you get from point A to point B, both in terms of the economy and in terms of what the, the climate targets are? Sure. It's a step-by-step -step process. I think last legislative session, we saw uh, an admission for the first time in decades that health and safety must come first in the state of Colorado. I'm speaking to Senate Bill 181. And so we're really focused on implementing Senate Bill 181 and thinking about how to protect communities and how to protect workers and how to protect our air. And a big piece of that is climate. And let, let me stop you. So for folks who, who aren't familiar with what SB 181 did, uh, that's a very big deal in terms of the overall, uh, the way the state looks at oil and gas and regulates oil and gas. It's not just about promoting production anymore. That's right. The Colorado law used to say that it was the job of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission to foster industry and protect public health and safety as a secondary mechanism if that was cost feasible. And so what Senate Bill 181 did is flip that and say that the most important thing for Coloradans is to put health and safety first for workers, for communities, and for the environment. So you have this shift happening then at the regulatory level. Um, how does that then affect or overlap with climate goals and how how do you get Colorado to reach emissions targets and and what are what are those targets what does that time frame look like so those targets are important we're looking at a 50% reduction in carbon pollution by 2030 and a 90% reduction in carbon pollution by 2050. And so there will be steps that need to be taken along the way there. Electricity, I think, is our best example of how that's worked so far, where we have so much wind and solar coming onto the grid now because it is so cheap uh, and we're cutting emissions there. So next, we need to look at transportation. We need to look at the built environment and moving toward electrifying a lot of what's happening within the built environment. So, I mean, let's talk transportation. I assume a large chunk of that then is vehicles, gas-powered, diesel-powered vehicles on the road. And if you're talking 50% by 2030, and you think about the average life of a car, that would seem to imply Colorado's got to start selling a whole lot of zero emissions vehicles very soon. 
That's right. And I think that's something that Governor Polis has recognized. His very first executive order after he was inaugurated happened in our parking lot. Uh, and we were proud to be there next to our electric vehicle charging station as he signed an executive order to bring more types of electric vehicles to the state of Colorado. And as you said, that makes a huge difference when it comes to how many of those vehicles are on the road, uh, since we need to start sooner instead of later. So I want to talk more about the oil and gas industry, uh, specifically the American Petroleum Institute, API. It's the, the big oil and gas trade association, obviously very active in Colorado. And they just launched a new nationwide PR campaign this week that sounded to me more like an onion headline, but it, it's real. So instead of their old I'm an energy voter campaign that they've apparently given up on, or at least finally recognizing that oil and gas energy voters were not really a thing. API is now positioning themselves as climate champions and part of the climate solution because I guess natural gas and oil is less bad than coal when it comes to CO2 emissions. How, how does an announcement like that go over in your office? I mean, they go over with laughter. It's less bad <laughs> is still bad. Right. And from an industry that has been dragged kicking and screaming into modernity, who's said each and every time that a new law is proposed to protect health and safety, protect our environment, that it can't be done, that it's too expensive. It's going to cost too many jobs, going to be the end of the economy. Yeah. On and on and on, always with the end of the world in mind. To see them spend this much money on a PR campaign shows why the whole thing is laughable. Is it also, though, an acknowledgement that everything they've been saying before about, you know, the dire end of the world predictions, perhaps not going to come true if <laughs> if we're we're transitioning and and some, suddenly oil and gas is part of the solution? It's never come true. They've they've said this over and over. Uh, but I think it's an admission that they are reading the same polling that everyone else is, that climate is a leading issue in Colorado. It's a leading issue in the West, and they know that they should be talking about it. In terms of oil and gas, particularly natural gas being less bad than coal, and, and it certainly is true that a whole lot of coal's demise is financially because there is so much cheap natural gas out there. Are they just conveniently ignoring methane in all of this? And how much less bad is CO2, is a, a natural gas-fired power plant, than, say, a coal-fired power plant? Colorado has a methane problem, and we've been a leader in terms of methane regulations in the past. There was a suite of new methane regulations passed as part of Senate Bill 181 at the end of 2019. But we need to step up and be a leader on that front again, because it is a potent greenhouse gas. Let's talk about wildlife and switch away from oil and gas for a minute. Uh, we keep hearing about wildlife corridors. We, we heard about that in several of our New Mexico episodes last year. Before we get to what the governor has, has to say about that, remind us of why wildlife corridors are important and and what is being done, what can be done at the state level versus the, the federal level. When you look at 
larger species. They need room to roam. And so when you protect wildlife corridors, not only do you protect the large animals that live there, but small ones as well, and you protect the land and waters on which they live. And so connectivity is a huge piece of that and one that the governor has rightly pointed out protects wildlife, protects land, protects water, and protects motorists who are driving down the highway. So in case of Colorado, you're talking about deer, elk, pronghorn, any other you know, top top level species we should be thinking about when we think wildlife migration in Colorado? Those are the big ones. Okay. So let, let's take a listen then to, to what the governor said uh, on that call this week. So I was also excited to sign an executive order to protect our wildlife corridors uh, to keep both peoples and animals safer. All of the work being done at the Colorado Department of Transportation and Department of Natural Resources aligned to protecting habitat and less casualties of animals uh, hit by cars. We are establishing Colorado's newest state park in Trinidad at Fisher's Peak. Uh, we're going to be ho- hopefully opening it by the end of this year. Uh, we are also working on expanding capacity or other state parks, certainly getting people of all ages to enjoy our great outdoors is critical. I should also point out that Fisher's Peak will connect with other protected habitat on both sides of the New Mexico and Colorado border to create a huge continuous zone of uh, protected areas for uh, wildlife habitat. So we've got a lot happening then on the policy level here. The governor's signing executive orders. The legislature is back in session now. What's on on their plate that you hope they're they're going to get to this session? Well, there is Senate Bill 3, one of the very first bills to be introduced this legislative session that looks at state parks funding. And so our state parks have a problem. They have a very good problem, and that's that they're popular. And so admissions are up. Uh, my son and I have been going around the state trying to visit all of the state parks, get them checked off in our passport. Nice. And it's been a great experience. And so we are bringing a new one on board, Fisher's Peak State Park. Yep, as the governor mentioned, they're down by Trinidad. Absolutely, uh, down south. And so that's going to provide wildlife connectivity even into New Mexico. But we need some funding to get that state park open. And not only to open that state park, but to open others that have been so popular with Coloradans. So there's a, a funding part of this. Uh, is there anything else on the policy level that needs to happen in terms of parks, in terms of the differences between state park land and state trust land, which a lot of folks don't necessarily think about? But in Colorado, state trust land is not, generally speaking, open to the public. Sure. Is How else can the state or can legislators address that? Or is is it simply a throw money at it kind of problem? Well, it's not just to throw money at a problem, uh, but the money is important. I think that in a state like Colorado that has such outdated financial constraints, that putting money towards something like state parks is a really critical way that we can talk about our priorities and recognize those priorities. What other priorities are there for, for Conservation Colorado this year? What are you, what are you looking at? Well, we talked about it earlier, but next steps in climate are going to be huge. We have been successful when you look at electricity, but transportation is already the number one source of emissions nationwide. It's moving into the number one slot here in Colorado. So we need to look at transportation and we need to look at the built environment. And so whether that is building efficiency for commercial buildings, whether that is helping homeowners to move to electric heat pumps that, uh, 
really create healthier homes. Uh, I think those steps are going to be critical. Uh, we, we talked about electric cars earlier. What else does transportation look like in terms of reducing emissions? Is that transit? Is, are there other things that we're, we're not thinking about? Is that the, the, the crazy Hyperloop ideas we, we hear tossed around? <laughs> there are lots of ideas out there, but there are some proven ones, and public transportation is one of them. And allowing people to live close to where they work is another one. So density and, and planning. Absolutely. As as an environmental concern, which I, I think a lot of people may not think of it that way when you talk about, about urban planning, but it is, it's a conservation issue. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the top ways that we can decrease emissions. And we, we haven't yet talked about one of Conservation Colorado's other big areas of focus, which is environmental justice. And it's something that on this podcast we touch on, particularly as it overlaps with tribal issues. We generally don't talk about that in terms of uh, urban issues and environmental justice within cities and Denver in particular. uh, There are some huge disparities as you go from neighborhood to neighborhood in terms of health risks. That's absolutely right. And we've seen a number of toxic polluters up and down the front range and onto the western slope that are putting these compounds into surrounding neighborhoods i mean they're they're putting things out like hydrogen cyanide hydrogen sulfide these are serious toxics that uh, harm kids they harm the elderly and we need to do something about it in terms of legislative action, in terms of policy action, is there more that needs to be done in terms of monitoring? Is it just cracking down on what we know already? Uh, what does that look like? I think it's all of the above. And so it's monitoring at the fence line because so many of these areas are surrounded by neighborhoods. It is looking at caps, looking at what is safe for people, not just in the surrounding neighborhood, but workers as well. And it's looking at what a fine structure is. I mean, some of these places, it's a slap on the wrist. It's the cost of doing business. And we need to move beyond that if we're really going to protect Coloradans. So that there is an actual, you're saying right now the the fine fines that these companies face are not necessarily enough of a deterrent relative to the cost of actually cleaning up what they do? That's right. Okay. Colorado clearly right now is leading, as David Roberts with Vox mentioned, leading across the West and across the country. So what can other states learn from what Colorado is doing? What can conservation groups in other states learn from following the Conservation Colorado model? Well, I think it's about looking economy-wide. That is one of the most critical things that Colorado has done so far, is set these targets, set them economy-wide, Once that's then on the books to start looking sector by sector at how you do reduce pollution. And so I think that two-step process is something that's critical and something that's ongoing. Last question, since you mentioned you're checking off state parks with your son, what's your favorite so far? What 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 do do folks need to get out there and uh, and discover here in Colorado? Oh, that's you saved the hardest question. Yeah, always. We have really enjoyed uh, the Arkansas headwaters area mm. because uh, it does stretch for so far. Great view of the um, valley there in Chafee County, uh, and takes you just all the way down to to the Fremont County area and lets you look around. 
All right. Garrett Garner-Wells is the communications director at Conservation Colorado. Garrett, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. We always like to wrap up with a look back at this week in Western history. I will warn you up front, this one gets dark, but it's fascinating. It was this week in 1977 that the state of Utah executed a man named Gary Gilmore, a murderer who became a national celebrity and even a Saturday Night Live punchline on the way to his death, and then inspired a world-famous advertising slogan, a punk rock hit, and won a bunch of folks' Pulitzer Prizes and Emmy Awards. As I said, dark. Gary Gilmore led a life of crime. He ran a car theft ring at age 14. By the time he was 24, he received a 15-year prison sentence, but he got sent to a halfway house after eight years, and then he was convicted of armed robbery. He was so violent behind bars, he then got sent to the maximum security federal prison in Marion, Illinois. When he was paroled from that at age 35 in 1976, he went to Provo, Utah to live with a distant cousin. That July, about three months after his release, Gary Gilmore robbed and murdered a gas station attendant in Orem, Utah. The next night, he robbed and murdered a motel manager in Provo. Both of his victims were students at BYU, who left behind widows and infant children. Gilmore managed to shoot himself in the hand while he was trying to get rid of the gun he used in the murders. His cousin then turned him in. He was tried for just one of the murders, the motel killing, because there was a witness who saw him in the registration office that night. The trial lasted just two days, and the jury unanimously recommended the death penalty. Now, up until this point, nothing would suggest a national story was in the works, but the death penalty had just been reinstated by the Supreme Court. In 1972, the court had ordered states to commute all death sentences to life in prison, and states started passing new death penalty statutes that were upheld in a ruling in 1976. So that same year when Gary Gilmore killed two people, there had been no executions in the U.S. for nearly a decade. The previous one had been in Colorado in 1967. After Gary Gilmore was sentenced, he didn't appeal the death sentence, and he fired his lawyers. Utah's law let Gilmore choose his method of execution, either hanging or firing squad. He picked the firing squad, saying he wanted to, quote, die like a man. Gilmore's mother tried to get a stay of execution on his behalf. The Supreme Court refused to hear her claim. And it was around that point that Gilmore's case became a national story. People wrote in to the warden volunteering to join the firing squad. All three TV networks asked for permission to film the execution. And amidst all this, that December of 1976, Saturday Night Live ran a macabre skit in which Candace Bergen introduced a choir that included Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi singing a holiday medley titled Let's Kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas. So let's kill Gary told you this one was going to get dark. Against Gilmore's wishes, the ACLU won several stays of execution on his behalf. Those finally ran out on January 17, 1977. Just after 8 a.m., Gary Gilmore was taken to an abandoned cannery behind the prison and strapped to a chair. The warden had selected five volunteer law enforcement officers as executioners, concealed behind a curtain with five small holes. 
When asked for any last words, Gilmore simply said, let's do it. One of the five bullets was supposed to be a blank, so the firing squad wouldn't know who fired the fatal shot. But Gilmore's brother later wrote that there were five bullet holes in Gary's clothes. Gary Gilmore, in effect, had become a proxy for the entire debate over capital punishment in the late 70s and early 80s. Later that year, 1977, the British punk band The Adverts released a single called Gary Gilmore's Eyes, a reference to Gilmore's corneas, which he had donated and were transplanted into two recipients within hours of his execution. Norman Mailer interviewed family and friends of Gary Gilmore and his victims and turned that into a true crime novel, The Executioner's Song. Mailer won the Pulitzer Prize for it, and the book was turned into a TV movie that won an Emmy for Tommy Lee Jones, who played Gilmore. In 1994, Gary Gilmore's brother Michael wrote a memoir called Shot in the Heart that followed his family from the Mormon settlers all the way through Gary's execution. That one also got turned into a movie on HBO. But the most lasting impact that Gary Gilmore's execution has had on American culture may be the most bizarre and unlikely. In 1988, Dan Wyden of the legendary Wyden and Kennedy ad agency needed a slogan that would appeal to everyone, regardless of age, gender, or ethnicity. His client was Nike, taking on Reebok, which was focused on the aerobics craze of the 80s. Nike wanted, in Wyden's words, a tough take-no-prisoners ad campaign. So Dan Wyden took Gary Gilmore's last words, let's do it, and turned them into one of the most iconic corporate slogans of all time. Just do it. That's right. Just do it was inspired by the last words of a serial murderer who wanted to be executed by firing squad. I know this sounds like the kind of thing that ought to be an urban legend, but here is Dan Wyden in his own words from a documentary called Art and Copy. Actually, the inspiration for this came from a man that was about to be executed for murder in Utah. And his final words to the firing squad were, let's do it. And um, so so I, th- I thought, well, I probably... I like the do it part of it. None of us really paid that much attention. We thought, yeah, that'd work. And um, I think what happened, and it was sort of like a lot of things in life, is sometimes it's the most inadvertent things that you don't really see that are, um, people started reading things into it much more than sport. The legacy of the execution of Gary Gilmore, the first person put to death after the reintroduction of capital punishment, 43 years ago this week, in Western history. And on that cheery note, you've made it to the end of another episode of Go West Young Podcast. If you have a moment in Western history you think we should cover, or a guest we should talk to, drop us a line, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or I am A. Weiss on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way for new listeners to find us. Thanks again to Garrett Garner-Wells from Conservation Colorado for joining us this week. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team, the Center for Western Priorities, 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>